0: Culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation.
1: To quote Milton by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Amber Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people.
0: Welcome to Risky Conversations, Velena. Please introduce yourself to our audience.
2: Hello, um, my name is Velina Chakarova. Um, I live in uh, Vienna, Austria, but I'm originally from Bulgaria. And actually, uh, it's an interesting profile because I am um, a German alumni, uh, have studied in a German high school and uh, German university. And I've been living in Austria for the last 13 years uh, as an Austrian citizen. So, I actually wear all these three leverages uh, in me. And I, of course, am also proud European. Uh, Well, I'm not going to say make Europe great again. However, (laughs) you know, I'm a uh, well, I'm a proud European, so... (laughs) So it's all of this is uh, actually me. And thank you guys for having me this uh, evening.
0: We want to start with the most obvious question right now. How is Europe reacting to coronavirus right now? Besides what you hear on the news and the chatter you see on Twitter, we want to hear from somebody who's literally living in that area and she can tell us a bit more firsthand experience of what's going on.
2: Well... uh... Welcome to my hell, so to say, because I've been I've been following um, all the events from day one. I've been following them not only because of my professional background, as I am actually covering, you know, global trends and trends that are relevant for political processes, specifically for Europe. So I've been following all the events from day one, uh, starting in China. I've been following also. So all the work uh, done by Nassim Taleb, uh, John Norman, so all the complexity, complex system team and what they have been producing. I have been trying to um, alarm the political decision makers here in Austria long before there was even a case one here in Austria. Now we are at 66 cases and we are bordering Italy that's literally facing uh, already, uh, you know, a devastating situation in the northern parts, uh, with uh, you know, with many areas being already under quarantine and uh, you know, uh, traveling uh, blockade and all the par- you know, all the full program that we that we've witnessed in China um, a month. And half of uh, you know month and almost two months actually ago right so um it's it's painful to watch because on the one side um, y- you know I personally saw it coming here in right. europe um, and then there is no serious uh, how to say um well the the principle that's being applied here by by political elites and, you know, institutions, because we have a complex, you know, we have a very complex uh, process here in Europe. We don't have only the, you know, the um, member states, uh, but we have also European Union, so we have also institutional approach. Uh, They come together, they discuss, they negotiate, they come come up with a common position whatsoever. So the problem is that uh, the principle that they've agreed on was, um more or less a principle of a of an appropriate response, so waiting till you know the situation deteriorates and then reacting to a situation which of course is detrimental to the principle to the precautionary principle that has been introduced by the labs team right so i I have to point to their work i mean for those who want to who want to learn more about it uh, everything has been outlined uh, in the last two months, and, uh, you know, there is a detrimental, that is d- detrimental difference between uh, these two pro- processes, uh, you know, processes, approaches, if you like, because in my sense, if you are going to apply this principle of appropriate response in a situation of pandemic, once this pandemic is here, it's already too late to react to it. So it's actually, um, you know, it's a reactive approach that's not really helpful and that's my pain that's why I said you know welcome to my help, because I've been you know just to give you an example three weeks ago we have been discussing uh, these matters and we didn't have a single case uh, you know confirmed case here in Austria and I was like guys be prepared for you know for having a similar situation. Uh, Not in the same scale, of course, as in Wuhan, but of course, similar situation. And, you know, having people who are panicking about it because they don't know how to react to it. You know, this is a very human reaction. You know, once you see that the virus is spreading and no politician would actually bring it under control. You know, no matter how many statements are being produced daily. Right. Because people then... Exactly. So, and now we are here, you know, we are bordering Italy. Um, each day we get more and more cases. Of course, there are some differences in the member states' approaches, you know, some countries try to be more, more cautious. Uh, mm-hmm. Italy is certainly, the, you know, unfortunately, the case where we see how how late they were in their response and what the consequences are, basically. Right. right. So, um, yeah, I'm devastated, to be honest, on a personal level, but also on professional level, because I've been trying to, you know, to uh, ringing to ring some bells about it. And it was all about, you know, we don't need too much panic. We don't need overreaction. We don't need, you know, um, too much precautionary, you know, actions in advance. That right. was more, more or less the response.
0: Right. See, the the thing that makes that process interesting is because I can actually appreciate what their concerns are, and I mean it in the following sense, right? So on the uh, individual level, the idea is it's better to prepare and be accused of panic than to panic because you weren't prepared later, right? So in that sense, it's much more prudent to save yourself and your family and your friends by saying, guys, look, uh, you know, I was telling Ember literally, I don't know, I think it was two weeks ago – Uh, please go and buy uh, all the stuff you'll need you know the rice the canned foods and all that stuff and water and she was asking me oh how much of the stuff did you buy and when I kind of told her you know I've stocked up a bunch uh, initially it kind of throws people off because they think wow you're overreacting but now a couple of weeks later all of a sudden uh, uh, they they look at that situation and they have a different approach to it and my, my argument with them is look what you think is overreaction may even still be underreaction because we don't know what we're dealing with. So in the face of that level of uncertainty, whatever you think is overreaction is also a false premise because you don't know what this virus actually is. You don't know its incubation period. You don't know its mortality rate. And people will point to these various stats saying, oh, it, you know, flu kills X number of people, Uh, So this is no different than just the flu. And then you have to remind them that, well, actually, this thing kills young people. The flu typically kills older people. So that tells you that it's a lot more potent. And as a consequence, it's much more important to be ready for it. But on the other hand, uh, and this is just so that we can always be appreciative of the nuance that's required on this particular subject. You have governments who have tax bases that they need uh, revenues from. And those tax bases are entirely predicated upon the economy not being disrupted. So now they're looking at it and they're doing a calculus in their head and they're thinking, well, if we tell people to panic or be worried and they stop going out, businesses are going to slumber and then we're going to have less revenue and we're going to have a a potential recession that we're going to bring on to ourselves in a self-fulfilling prophecy. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, if we don't worry about this and we overwhelm our medical system and if this thing turns out to be as bad as it actually could be, And we're completely in the opposite direction because we're all running toward the cliff, we're going to be in trouble. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. I have a couple of friends of mine who uh, are Mm -hmm. from the islands in the Caribbean. And the entire islands there are predicated upon tourism. And their government cannot say anything because if they say anything and tourism drops by 20%, their entire um, economy is totally ravaged. So you kind of see the balance act that people have to perform. and in, in in most cases, I try to look at it from the point of view of I'm like, look, you're not totally stupid in the sense that you're worried about this thing being uh, dangerous to, to to your country because you're a particular leader of a country. You have multiple agendas to to counterbalance, right? You also don't want to upset your trading partners. You, you know you have to walk a very tight lo- rope. So for us, it's a little bit easier to say, hey, make decision X or make decision y. Because we have different values and we have different uh, items on our agenda. For them, I'm not saying their decision is correct or incorrect. I'm saying we need to be fully aware of the context of the decisions they're making. Now, it seems as though it is accelerating in the other direction, like you said. They're realizing that there's panic and there's worry. And there's an interesting uh, side product that I've noticed. And it's countries where people greet each other with uh, kisses on the cheeks. So the Italians, uh, the French, the Persians they're seeming to have a much more greater um, rate of uh, transmission than the countries who typically don't have that warm level of greeting between people. So I'm starting to notice a couple of interesting trends here. But to your point, um, it's, it's, it's not easy to convince because um, we, you know, we come at it from a point of view. Of, like of It's like when me and Ember try to sell um, our business uh, solutions from a software point of view to a company, they know going in we have an agenda. Obviously we have an agenda but their agenda and our agenda don't always line up. So what we think uh, when we're pitching to them is that you're being short-sighted. In reality is they're saying, yeah, I see the value of what you're saying, but it doesn't completely line up with my values. So you have to give it some time. And when those values line up, then they'll come around to the issue.
2: Well, it's also about, uh, you know, um, having a certain responsibility because it's a pandemic, as you uh, already mentioned, uh, the unknown unknowns are far too many as compared to what we actually know about this virus, right? Two months later, I mean, we're still very much in the dark about the virus itself. You know, the whole thing, how it started right from the start in the, in December, you know, was covered more or less, uh, you know, because it started in, in, in China, where we perfectly well know, you know, that the government, uh, uh, well, did the best to, say, face right from the start. I mean, uh, they lost at least a few weeks before they officially, actually, officially, uh, you know, um, made it aware, you know, so basically at least three weeks later, because like I said, I've been following this from day one and it reminded me. Uh, you know quite much to another incident, even though that it was not of a similar proportion, or you know it was a natural disaster, or uh, you know a hazard such as uh, you know as a virus, uh, as a coronavirus. However, it reminded me uh, of another you know a similar way of dealing of you know with the with the with the situation uh, during the Soviet time, and at that time I was. Uh, you know, seven years old, and I remember very well how when the Chernobyl uh, incident occurred, you know, the Chernobyl catastrophe uh, in the Soviet uh, Union, uh, well, there was actually... Uh, Okay, during that time, we know we didn't have internet and social media. However, the way how the communist government uh, dealt with, uh, you know, this emergency right from the start was basically to cover it up. I mean, people were kept literally in the dark. And this was very similar in this situation, specifically in December. And then in the beginning of January, and what I actually point out is that we lost precious time to react adequately, you know, um, towards towards containing the virus, right? Mm, I mean, right. saving saving lives. And of course, I I do understand that at the beginning we could. I mean, the people. Uh, at the epicenter of, uh, you know, in Wuhan couldn't know exactly what they were dealing with. That's understandable. I mean, from now, from, you know, uh, looking back at the events uh, in January, but still uh, all these, you know... uh, Covering up of the situation, you know, um, uh, so that they save face. They don't, you know, they come up strong. And I don't even think at the central, at the top level. I, I, I mean, actually, uh, you know, party leaders, uh, activists uh, from the party at local level, you know, the local, uh, the local party members were trying, you know, to keep it under radar, to keep, to keep a low profile of it, right? So this is how it actually started. Uh, The whole emergency was actually handled with deception, with cover-ups. I don't need to give you examples. There were some really great uh, uh, journalistic, uh, you know, um, articles um, already um, who are, you know, who actually um, more or less outlined the whole events. In December and in January, but it was actually a whole emergency emergency was handled with deception, with cover ups, with actually with this, you know, controlling of the narrative. And then if I. If I, if I go back also to the first statements by the World Health Organization, and I have the screenshots, you know? If you remember, if you can recall, it was also very similar, you know, don't panic. It's everything is under control. We, you know, we are in the complete control of the situation. If you remember that, uh, I mean, it's-, it's uh, Of course. We have, we have it documented. Uh, and yes. now, if we compare the narrative, two months later it's a uh, very you know uh, it's completely different right so i mean you can sense the panic actually coming out from the institutions okay uh, which is also uh, worrisome okay so like you've pointed out we actually still don't really know what we don't know about this virus right. more or less okay that is actually something that uh, you know european elites have to deal with right now and are not really <laughs> i mean i've been i've i've traveled last week uh, to a conference in prague and there was really no no uh, n- actually nothing that could give you an idea that we are in an emer- emergency situation and i have i have talked to many friends uh, also Traveling on business because you have to think about it that many people are still traveling because they have business trips and their companies are not canceling these business trips. So you have right. to do it. You don't have any choice. You know, I have, right. I have, um, you know, I have uh, had a cancellation by a guest uh, this Friday who uh, decided to stay in Germany, so he didn't come to Vienna uh, on my invitation. Uh, the the other three guys came to Vienna, but he decided to stay at home, but still, um, you know, because he actually was afraid that the university would not cover his costs in the case that, uh, you know, you have an outbreak, sudden outbreak, right? And you have to stay in Vienna because suddenly you are quarantined. But more or less, uh, it's so interesting that you have uh, actually, if you look at the distances, uh, we are like few hours away between Italy and Austria and the sense of emergency is a completely different one.
0: Right, and
2: moving right. from one capital to the to the next here in Europe, you have a complete, completely different picture of what right. is going on. Okay?
0: Right. right. That's no, still you know the case. Yeah. You know what's interesting about that is uh, I have friends who are in the airline industry and I have other friends who are in the... Um, uh, conferences and event booking type of, I have friends, it's weird, I have friends in almost every industry just because of um, the nature of my my, uh, my previous uh, networking capacities. But what was interesting was they're telling me that the airlines are freaking out because people book flights way in advance and they now know that people are not booking flights on the fly, like, pardon the, pra- the pun, they're not booking yeah. any flights right now. And so they're saying we're not going to give refunds because X, Y, and Z, because they know they're about to face a really bad downturn. So the people who bought tickets earlier are in a bad spot now because they're not going to get their refunds. The airlines know that if they issue refunds, on top of the fact that they're no longer going to get fresh flights going out, some of them may not survive this particular uh, uh, event because you don't really know how long this is going to last. Uh, At the same time, conference holders, people who um, you know uh, create conferences to 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 have people fly in, uh, those are paid in advance and they're also not issuing refunds because they're claiming, hey. You know, we went through the trouble of setting all this stuff up. We gave our deposit for the, for the uh, particular venue. The venue is not giving back our money, so we can't give you back your money. There's this chain reaction up and down the, uh, in this particular instance, supply chain of how the whole or, uh, events are organized. So everybody's put in a tight position because the people who paid money and are not going to be reimbursed figure, well, if I'm going to get burned, I may as well go. Um, and the, comp- the businesses who have taken these advance payments are also in a spot where they're not willing to eat the cost of giving out refunds because they also know going forward they're not going to have as much business and maybe have almost no business for this year. Because if you're in one of those businesses, if you're an airline executive right now, you have to stop and think about it from the point of view of two layers, right? The first layer is your own staff, your, your uh, flight attendants, your, your pilots yeah you know they may your 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 workers on the on the, on the tarmac who clean the uh, the planes and who load and unload baggage, they may not want to come into work. So first you have that problem. Second of all, the uh, people who are flying, your customers may not want to come on your flight. So you have two layers where you can entirely uh, destroy your business because if you have costs due for the flights uh, for the planes that you bought you know that have uh, 15 20 year leases, those payments are going to be still expected to be made. At the same time, your business just took a massive nosedive, pardon the pun, yet again. So there's lots of complexity and nuance built into this. So what we try to do here is um, our personal stance, uh, myself and Ember included, and my family, is that we're taking this to assume the worst case scenario. We're preparing as such. We're encouraging people to think these things through. I had a a, a pretty large um, uh, argument with the family last night because there's a wedding that's been planned for the family this, this, this July. And I said to them, you may have to come to terms with the fact that you may have to cancel this wedding because people are flying in. And at the time when, you know, we don't know what this is going to look like. And I've been told, you know, oh, you're fear mongering and, you know, it'll be fine by then. The summer is going to come and warm weather is going to kill this thing and all those other arguments. So I kind of know the thick of it all. Right. I've sort of experienced what it's like to try to hold multiple positions and to give a nuanced perspective on it. So it's interesting to see how all this unfurls, because all the human values all the human traits of greed, you know, um, desire for, for uh, you know, specialness. I get invited to all sorts of, um, uh, you know, conferences myself, and I always decline. But, but there's a layer to that, which is like, oh, it's fun. I get to travel the world, and I get to do conferences, and some people just get a kick out of that. So you get to see all of those variables condensed down against the facts of you could potentially contract a disease that can kill you. What's your decision-making uh, process telling you to do? Right, so it's fascinating to watch all of that. And um, uh, the, the the question I wanted to ask you now is: since the Chinese and and the um, uh, the Russians appear to be such close friends, as you stated in your uh, multiple uh, tweets that the China bear connection, what's Russia's re- reaction to all of this? I haven't seen anything on the news about Russia and how they're dealing with coronavirus.
2: Uh, Well, they are actually taking quite a precautionary principle, Uh, they actually even ran the risk of uh, you know of uh, deteriorating their relations with china uh, which are now in a at the kind of an unprecedented level of uh, you know of closeness of approximation if you like uh, coordination in uh, various fields uh, and uh, this probably will cause some you know damage at least in the field of you know diplomacy political links there will be some probably some some kind of uh, you know um backfiring uh, on uh, the side of china the very fact that it didn't happen yet is just because the chinese are you know are preoccupied now with getting uh, getting uh, the situation under control which i think at least what we've seen from the last few days is having a positive turn you know it's it's not over but at least we have now heard some good news coming coming out from uh, Wuhan you know with uh, with some hospitals being closed and you know the numbers are you know uh, uh, at least uh, you know the death rate and whatsoever is just now declining which are really I mean it's really good news Uh, well the Russians they have actually waited at the beginning with the travel restrictions, this was basically, you know, uh, one of the signs of, uh, you know, friendship. The dragon bear, you know, trying to, trying to be uh, as friendly as possible with, you know, specifically with this Chinese narrative, because as you remember, and I have to point it once again, for the for the sake of truth, you know, is um. that um, is that uh, you know the world health organization if you remember I do well yes well they declared when they declared the coronavirus to be a public health emergency this was a month ago it was at the beginning of february if you remember correctly they actually uh, tried to uh, you know convince people that there there you know that no travel restrictions whatsoever are needed right
0: Right, I remember.
2: So that was that was actually the case right from the start. We don't need trade restrictions. We don't need travel restrictions. You know, just keep it going, right? Uh, and uh, this is, um, well, the Russian position at that time was in line with it, okay? So they really tried to to stay as, you know, to keep, to stick to it as long as, as possible. However, once they, they, get, they got their own cases, you know, suspect cases whatsoever, they also introduced, uh, you know, some uh, travel restrictions. Uh, so basically, for instance, in the main airports, uh, they uh, for instance, in Moscow, they actually uh, separated flights coming from China, a specific you know you know part of the airport and whatsoever so i think that uh, you know in uh, times of a pandemic each nation thinks of its you know of its own first and foremost of its own survival so there will be some you know some uh, like i said some political backfire <laughs> backfiring of uh, um, once this is over, yes, because the Russians also, you know, introduced limitations to their trade, uh, trade, and uh, you know, traveling.
0: Right, right, right. That's so, the
2: that's the situation right now.
0: I see. Mm-hmm. So, um, just just for our listeners, would you mind just giving us a little bit more context to your background?
2: Okay, so. My background, my professional background. uh, Okay, so I already gave you an idea about my, you know, (laughs) four layers of uh, mentalities, you know, European mentalities. Um, When it comes to my professional uh, background, uh, I actually, um, well, studied... um, international relations, political science, you know, all these majors that uh, Nassim Taleb uh, (laughs) loves so much next to psychology. (laughs) When I visited, when I attended actually the real world risk um, um, program last year in February, the first question was, uh, is there anybody, you know, coming from the political science (laughs) background? You know, that was the first question that he asked. Actually asked. And I was sitting in the first row. So, you know, (laughs) so uh, I actually come. uh, My academic background is uh, political science, international relations. This is what I've studied for seven years. in Sofia, in the capital of Bulgaria, and then later on in Heidelberg in Germany. And uh, during that time, in my 20s, I was, you know, very much into, and I'm still 20 years later, uh, very much into... um, Global affairs, international relations—you uh, know, relations between uh, major rivals, global, regional—you know, actors, constellations—all of these things that really, really, I found and still really find exciting. Well, the problem is that uh, after spending seven years um, at uh, these universities, I didn't really get many answers to the questions I had so I actually ended up with having even more questions as uh, when you know as to as to the state of the global affairs why certain you know certain uh, processes and structures are the way they are okay and this right. was you know uh, the time I have to say uh, also after the you know first and foremost after the collapse of the Soviet Union I mean I've witnessed that myself I come from a you know communist ruled country that was a satellite of the Soviet Union um, so I've witnessed all of that I I can assure you that um, nobody literally, Really saw it happening when it comes to the people, you know, ordinary people. And I mean, of course, 95% of the people in this, you know, communist uh, (laughs) um, countries uh, prior to the 90s. No one actually saw it happening, okay? So, uh, you know, people were completely devastated. They just found it out on the television. I, right. I remember very, very, very well this uh, this evening when we were sitting, you know, having dinner and we saw on the television that there is a transition of power, you know, and suddenly from one day to the next, the so-called communist elite, uh, you know, turn, turned out to be a social democrat, uh, you know, to be social democrats or liberal democrats, you know. Choose whatever you like, you know. It was just like, you know, recoloring, okay? And all of these, and then in the 90s, the 90s were really, really harsh for Eastern Europeans because of the transition processes. Uh, Basically, the whole economies were completely devastated completely you know you had like all these processes of you know national economies who were basically more or less state-owned turned into private privatization processes uh, with you know uh, <laughs> all of the effects uh, i don't need to tell tell you about that we had hyper inflation i mean if there is something demoralizing uh, you know next to war you know mm-hmm. you cannot compare a war with anything else but the next think demoralizing thing is actually to to live in a hyperinflation so this is really something that is just turns you out in a survival mode you know and we've been we've been through it for two years you know and all this time i've still been living in you know in sofia and mm. after finishing after finishing you know uh, high school i decided i want to learn more what is really going on how are these transformational processes being shaped actually by whom actually who are uh, the real actors behind it so this right. were this was this was the motivation uh well like i said seven years later i ended up with having more questions than you know answers i was mm. very dissatisfied you know, for very obvious reasons that uh, you know uh, nasib Taleb has been pointing to them so many, many times i don 't want to you know uh, repeat repeat it you know we're having all this qualitative research you know very linear uh, you know not being capable of predicting anything actually whatsoever, like I gave the example with uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, case studies you know you pick up all this uh, this uh, bottom up uh uh, cases and you you have like case studies comparing comparing apples with oranges or whatsoever not giving you any (laughs) idea about any complex processes and this was actually the time the time you know specifically after the collapse of the soviet of the unprecedented globalization of unprecedented complexity of the global system right so i started i started Uh, You know, being an, uh, you know, more or less autodidact person, getting into physics, into biology, into uh, complexity, complex systems. Um, Then I also uh, dived into this geopolitical and geoeconomic approach. I started learning more about international political economy. How is this nexus between economics and politics? You know, not having only the one or the other, but what is actually the nexus between them? And I started, you know, this was the time when I already moved uh, uh, to Austria after finishing, uh, you know, the university in Heidelberg. And, uh, well, my first job actually was at a non-profit organization. Mm. So in this non-profit organization, I started covering all these, you know, on the one side processes in eastern europe and in this time we had like situations like the georgian war 2008 later later on the ukrainian war 2014 uh, the wider black sea area which is you know this uh, very uh, still a very very complex geographic area between the middle east you know, southern and eastern neighborhood of of, 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 of the European Union. You have Turkey, you have Russia, you have, you know, the member states of the European Union, you have the North African countries, you have the Middle Eastern countries. It's just, it's just so much, there are so many layers, you know, so many layers. And then you have the Balkan countries, the south, uh, south southeastern European countries. It's just overwhelming okay so this was the time when i started (laughs) when i started covering these processes and then i was like okay but that's still not enough for me you know it's still Mm. not you know it's 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 telling you something about specific layers uh, layers like regional layers but it's still there's still much there's still much more to it okay and this is the time when i actually started covering next to it uh you know global risks and systemic risks so this was the time after 2007 2008 when the you know for the very first time systemic risks became more or less prominent due to the financial crisis due to the global financial crisis and we had um uh you know the Privilege, if you like, because we were a non and still are I'm still in this institute. Meanwhile, I'm uh, the head of the institute uh, been, uh, you know, the active head since 2018. So I underwent basically, uh, I underwent all the, you know, the uh, internal, (laughs) um, you know, processes of uh starting as a research fellow you know senior research fellow ending up as the head of the of this small institute it's a very small institute we are all actually you know i'm the oldest one there so a bunch of young people and we are more or less situated at the input side if you look at the political processes of a country name right. wh- whenever you like you know which, which, which country you like um if you look at these processes and structures as a as a box we are based at the input side of this pro, uh, you know of this political box so basically we are trying to constantly produce research for them to give them ideas uh, just like I gave you the example with the coronavirus right at the beginning, so we are not in, we are incorporated into this process, but we are not part of the bureaucracy or part of the political decision makers that makes us more or less independent in our way of thinking, so because we don 't have to follow strict bureaucratical or any other lines you know party take party party lines or whatsoever, you know, agendas. Uh, Only the only thing that we have in mind, of of course, is uh, if we are to follow a certain process, what it means for Austria, what it means for Europe. That's always the question we have in mind. Okay. That's the only question that we actually follow. And uh, yes, and this is how we've been incorporated also in this kind of scenario monitoring process by certain ministries, you know, Key ministries in Austria, where they wanted to invite also external, external, you know, um, researchers, so that we can give them also this external picture. Because right. once you are part of the process, you you know, you don't tend to um, you, you you tend to be in a kind of a circle. Right. Do you know? Do you understand what I I don't I don't know whether I can actually describe it very well, but uh, sometimes what you lack is uh, is this, you know, external perspective.
0: Right. 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 uh,
2: Something Mm. like, uh, you know, like. additional view of things because right. this because of this group thinking okay because of the pressure of sticking to the rules you know within the institution because of the institu- you know inner internal competition uh, and whatsoever you know call it whenever you like so this is how i've started covering all these global risks um, I've been doing this horizontal screening of signals, strong, weak signals when it comes to the global system. Uh, what kind of risks are emerging of this, inter, you know, connection within the main main components of this global system, you know? And what I mean is all the socioeconomic components, okay? Not the natural, not the ecosystems, okay? So, right. and, and then, of course... To make sense of uh, of the emerging uh, of the emerging uh, global and regional structures, because we have so many different layers right now, and you see how this uh, I mean, just pick a region, and we can I can imagine immediately give you an idea of uh, you know of actors constellations and uh, uh, you know interests constellations, and then you have like a global layer that's also influencing them, you know top-down, and so on and so on, but just this is maybe, you know, uh, a short, this is probably the short wrap-up <laughs> of what I'm, doing, of well, what I'm you know, doing.
0: You know what's interesting about that, because as you're we discussing it, um, me and Amber, we come from Afghanistan, so we have a, 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 an experience of what it's like when the Soviet-style communist uh, intrusion into normal life uh, prevails. And we were lucky enough to escape that. But one of the interesting things that I uh, started to pay attention to, uh, maybe about 12-15 years ago, was this idea that um, at a specific moment in history, uh, once a nuclear bomb was discovered, and once um, uh, you know uh, the population started to grow post World War II, we had a different sort of a problem that sort of showed up. And this is where we have the trade-off between. Um, needs on one side and performance on the other so it's sort of like how cell phones they want to get faster but they don't want to kill the battery life similarly countries have this issue where they have a growing population but they also need to make sure all those people have higher quality of life which means competition gets started and the businesses have problems in that sense is that you can't and not everybody who works at a particular law firm can become a senior partner not everybody can become Uh, you know, a professor at a university. So what you end up doing is you start to engage in four metrics that I I started to notice about wealth transfer mechanisms, which is that, you know, this idea of international free trade, that's just basically a a cover for um, uh, uh, wealth transfer mechanisms from poor countries to the um, elites in in more powerful countries. And what they do is to counterbalance that act is to pretend that, oh, when there's a crisis, the middle class of country A i.e. the United States or Canada or Europe is going to send quote-unquote aid to the poor country in Africa or in China or Brazil or pick a country where they're having some issues. And that's how the, the powerful structures maintain this semblance of well, we're, we're the good guys and we're helping out. Meanwhile, the businesses and the way they conduct those businesses and how lopsided those particular agreements tend to be is robbing those poor countries of their wealth. Not completely, obviously, but there's a layer of greed that's so deeply embedded into it that it's very easy to see. So you're noticing that there's these uh, four mechanisms that are being put into place, which is immigration. Uh, immigration is basically cheap labor, right? They don't. Nobody wants to do immigration because they feel good or they want to do diversity. That's all that stuff that they sell to you. What they really want is they want cheap labor. Then you have the next mechanism, which is leverage in terms of financial resources. That's why all the banks are leveraged every single financial downturn is predicated upon this idea of maintaining this quote-unquote picture of growth, and they do so by just constantly borrowing money. The third thing is this idea of of, uh, a transfer of mechanism uh, through the internet vis-a-vis the the knowledge base. So Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Facebook itself is actually like a second internet. For the vast majority of the people in the world who've just come online, Facebook is the internet for them. So you got these mechanisms of uh, you know, trade, you got um, uh, uh, banking, financial regulations and whatnot, you got immigration and you got technology. And these are all basically being used and usurped as mechanisms for transferring wealth from every country possible to the ones in charge. So the reason I bring all that up for you is because you're seeing this from the point of view of... Uh, giving input to these governments they have to look at this and they have to analyze and assess the situation from the point of view of we want better relations for our partners abroad so if you are bulgaria you do want a nicer relationship with the rest of the world and the rest of europe but at the same time the people who are your citizens are suffering enormously because of like you said hyperinflation i remember back in the uh in the 90s when the soviet Union collapse in Russia, quote unquote, started to privatize some of their state owned um, properties, there was a capital flight problem, which was that, you know, uh, a lot of Western co- countries started to put a lot of money into it and to help people become, you know, um, uh, independently capable of buying shares of those countries. And that's how you got the Russian oligarchs coming out, right? So there's this constant battle between the rent seekers and parasites. And I think that's an interesting take on this issue because parasites actually is very relevant to what's going on today is that if you look at it from a Darwinian point of view, the most efficient way to survive is to be a parasite because you don't have to hunt, uh, you don't have to kill, and you're not under attack. You're basically attached to a host and you're just sucking all the nutrients you need to stay alive and you're maybe maybe producing some good to that host that you're you're, you're latched onto. So I'm, not, I'm I'm starting to look at this from George Cooper's point of view um, when he was talking about Darwinism being a form of competition of what's good relative to what's out there, not what's good as in what's the best solution. So when I when I hear you talk, the first question I ask is when you sit across the table to give your input to this to these leaders who are trying to make decisions as your you know alternative perspective, are you getting a sense that you're talking to rent seekers and wealth transfer mechanisms? Or are you getting a sense that there's some genuine good people who are trying to make decisions, but their hands are tied and they're not really sure a way out of it is possible?
2: Well, that's actually the, the you know, I've been, I've spent 10 years in this business, right? I've been dealing with uh, political decision makers for the last 10 years and I read it and it was an intentional decision because I really want wanted to to make to make a change you know if you like i mean it might sound idealistical uh but at the time i was still very young right so it was actually my deliberate choice to be in this process but not as a party member of a party you know following lines of you know uh, directives or whatsoever but to right. be you know more or less independent in my way of thinking because that was always you know that was always my 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 per, you know my personal principle to have a complete 100% freedom of thinking and of you know of uh, you know of saying what I really mean the way how I see it. So yes, of course there are some 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 authentic people in the process who are trying to you know to make a change, to, 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 you know, to to deliver, if you like. The problem that we have with developed economies, with specifically with democratic uh, systems is uh, a quite obvious one when it comes to when it comes to political decision makers. And that is that these people want to win elections that's all that matter to them first and foremost they right. always tend to think in two to four years time frame mm-hmm. nothing more than that no decision that has a sustainable you know impact in like let's say ten years from now would be a matter of choice for a politician who knows that he's not he's not going to win elections with it, you know. So pick any issue <laughs> uh, which is not sexy, is not selling to the electorate, right. and and there you go. And that's actually the most frustrating part because they are some in some way, in my eyes, for instance, because I'm going to say it very openly as I don't. I have zero intentions to go into politics because exactly because of that is that they are not authentic. They are not authentic. They most of them they are reading from some you know prepared memos. They have no not that they didn't not that they don't have their own thoughts or no uh, you know their experience or knowledge or whatsoever. Um, that's not the case. But they are mostly reading from you know from their memos or you know prepared speeches and that's the reason why they are so unauthentic that's the reason why people don't buy what they are telling us right so it's 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 a you know um the agenda that they have this two to four years agenda is a very average one you know you just pick from least uh, you know bad options that might somehow affect your electability—that's—that's that's the reality, okay? So, right. of course, of course, you're right when you say, uh, for instance, you—you've you, mentioned—you've you, mentioned immigration. You know, immigration as a cheap labor. You know, expanding to other regions. You know, with your model of. Uh, you know, of enlargement whatsoever, you know, call whatever geoeconomic model, it's always the same idea. You know, you have a flow of people moving from one spot to the other because they hope that they will get better, you know, better conditions, working conditions, life standards whatsoever. You just take Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe this has witnessed an exodus of people, even though that this region actually was not in a state of war, just as it was the case with the Balkans uh, in the last 30 years and you have a complete exodus of people you know moving from the eastern eastern parts, parts of Europe to, to the western parts. I mean even the case of Bulgaria, Bulgaria has lost millions of people without waging a war for a single day in the last 30 years and is going to, is projected to have like 5 million people in just 20-30 years from now, and it was at almost 10 million after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, these are obvious, obvious systemic processes that we we observe, of course, I mean, moving from, from, uh, and I am a perfect example for it as well, right? I actually moved, I always tend to say I'm not an economic uh, immigrant, I'm actually a political one because the corruption of this country, in this country, was so overwhelming was so overwhelming in every possible social layer. And it was just unbearable. You had only two options: either you are part of this system and you just close your eyes and you are, you know, you know, you're participating, or you are out of this system and you are a complete loser because you have no choice of, you know, having getting a good job, uh, having a good life there or whatsoever. These this, this are the two options. You don't have any others still. Okay, so I think that what here is important when we talk about political elites, and this is where I will, you know, try to do my best to somehow impact the process in the next 10 years, um, is what actually Nasim Taleb already pointed out with uh, his Principia Politica. Right with this uh, with this huge monumental you know fundamental document that uh, he uh, is going to publish as a as a book and that is to try to pressure and to discipline uh, discipline politicians uh, bottom up because it's obvious that it's not going to happen top down it's obvious that they're not going to you know, to, to change their behavior, right? So we, the citizens, need to find a way how to discipline them and to make them change in their behavior because, as you see, the problems have become too complex, you know. Uh, this two to four years motive of solving problems is not going to bring us anywhere, right? And... Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think that this is where I see also my role, like I said, in the next 10 years, I'm not going to spend another 10 years, you know, in just in just doing the same what I've done the last 10 years, uh, but I'm going to try to initiate a process with citizens uh, to to create awareness about the necessity to change behavior of, of politicians. We have to keep those in power constantly in check, right?
1: Right. right. So, and, what's, so what's yeah. going on between uh, Turkey and Poland? Is there a conflict on the horizon? It appears like Turkey appears, appears to be trying to use immigration as a weapon. Well, Between Poland Turkey and Poland? You mean it's more like uh, actually it's more like
2: Turkey and the European Union. Okay. And uh, it's yeah, um, yes, uh, the migration card, so to say, is not a new, you know, political instrument. Uh, the European Union and Turkey have um, agreed on a kind of a deal in 2016 where Turkey actually, um, well, promised to facilitate uh, the necessary, you know, conditions for keeping the migrants and refugees coming from war zones on the Turkish soil, Mm -hmm. whereas the European Union promised to deliver 6 billion euro for these facilities. Okay. That was the deal for the last, let's say, well, for the period between 2016 and 2019. Now we are once again in the situation of, so to say, renegotiating this deal. Uh, There is indeed actually a meeting, uh, you know, set for tomorrow between the European Union, um, well, Member states institutions or representatives and the Turkish government so that they will meet and will try to agree on uh, new conditions of course on the side of Turkey they now see themselves in the strong position because they have already opened the border and according to their minister you know of internal uh, affairs um, more than hundred, More than 100,000 refugees already left one of their, you know, um, control points at the border, moving towards Greece and uh, mostly Greece and Bulgaria. And because there is, um, well quite there are quite many tensions between greece and turkey already um for various reasons not only because of the you know the refugee issue uh they know that putting stress on you know on greece right now is uh, you know is a way how they can actually they can actually stress out uh, the european union as well i mean the european union decision makers uh
1: do you so, think that greek has uh feels that the europeans have abandoned them
2: no, no, no,
1: that that actually, in fact, uh,
2: in fact, the most um, political, most political, uh, well, most member states have uh, not only announced their solidarity, some of them, um, including Austria, you know, sent governmental members to Greece to express their solidarity. They offered also, you know, financial funding for um, for, you know, for um, their refugee programs and to basically to facilitate the newly coming uh, refugees on the Greek islands. Also on the side of the European Union institutions, they have been also very supportive. So actually they are more or less behind Greece, of course. Um, Well, it's an external European Union border uh contrary to bulgaria which is also european union border but it's not part of the schengen and schengen is actually this you know system that is uh, in charge of controlling the european uh the european union so-called european union borders okay oh. so they've been quite supportive on both institutional and member states level the thing here is that you have this triangle between russia china uh sorry between russia Turkey and the European Union. And it's, uh, you know, on the one side, you have this rapprochement uh, between uh, Russia and Turkey when it comes to their... Uh, overlapping interests. They have, you know, Turkey wants to uh, get uh, the Russian S-400 system. They have agreed on getting more gas from uh, from Russia. Just, just last month, a new pipeline was, uh, you know, was opened, to the Turk stream. And uh, then they have also some economic and trade interests. Uh, so there is a kind of a uh, quite solid fundament for, for uh, rapprochement. Uh, on the other side, of course, we are observing what is going on in Syria, where they have detrimental interests, right? So there is also quite a conflictual ground <laughs> for uh, for 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 these two actors. And then you have the European Union on the other side. The European Union doesn't want to participate in uh, in uh, war zones and conflicts like in the Middle East. They want to stay away. On the other side, of course, they have to provide some, you know, financial means. Uh, because staying uh, staying outside of uh, war zones, right in front of your uh, door, uh, means that you have to make some you know you have some obligations, right? So uh, it's it's very complicated at the moment. But I suppose that. This uh, issue won't be settled tomorrow or in the next month, uh, (laughs) you know, the Turkish government will be using the card, you know, of the refugees. They have like more than four million refugees right now, you know, in their camps, camps on the Turkish soil. So it's always going to be a leverage for them in their, you know, in their bilateral relations with the European Union.
0: So, here, so here's an interesting uh, question to pose to somebody with your uh, background and knowledge and experience. Um, so we remember the, the Turkish, the Ottoman Empire, so they have this particular pride in their history. Obviously, you have the Chinese who were, up until literally two months ago, were under this impression that the 21st century was going to be China's century. Now that's kind of put in a little bit of doubt. Then you have the Russians, which uh, after the Soviet collapse – there really is no path for them in that regard for their old glory in terms of their pride, but they do have the most nuclear weapons, if I'm not mistaken, behind the U.S. or ahead of the U.S., one of those two arguments. So what's the relationship really like for how Russia sees itself relative to the world and for how Russia sees itself as a partner slash potential enemy of the Chinese, given that they obviously don't want to you know, be in a world where the Chinese dictate terms to them? Um, because they were not really big fans of having the Americans dictate terms to them. So, how do you see all of that?
2: Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's a very, very good question. I mean, one that I have been dealing with for the, <laughs> for the last decade, and it's uh, really it's really interesting to follow that. On the one side, I mean, like you pointed out, you have uh, you know. Uh, um, uh, 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 a country that has been one of the two major systemic poles of the world, I mean, has been determining the international relations in every possible field, you know, for how long? 50, 60 years. And then suddenly from one day to the next, you know, without the war, you know, collect- collapsing collapsing completely collapsing you know uh there was this quote by the russian president that uh, the collapse of the soviet union has been the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 21st century right and uh you know that was not said without reason it's 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 hard it's hard to you know to part yourself from mentally if you like, you know, for these political elites to, to to uh get rid of the idea that you actually are no longer that systemic power. And to be fair, Russia, yes, is still of course a nuclear, uh global nuclear power, but when it comes to all the you know the main, the key factors, um that are necessary for projection of power in the world, you know, in the global affairs, they can be, right now, we have only two, actually two systemic rivals, two systemic competitors. You know, we have still one country in the world, whether, you know, someone likes it or not, uh, that's a different uh, matter. I'm not uh, giving an assessment whether this is a good thing or a bad thing or whatsoever. I'm not interested in all these normative assessments. Uh, I'm just pointing out to the, you know, the reality that there is one country that still possess or has actually the means for global power projection, and that is uh, the United States. On the other side, we have a rising power. You know, we still don't know whether China will be in the situation of becoming a second systemic pole, right? Mm. We still don't right. know that. We have an unprecedented economic, um, you know, economic and trade projection power on the side of the Chinese. Just to give you a very simple example, uh, because we talked about the coronavirus at the beginning, and uh, if uh, we recall uh, the last situation in 2003, if I'm not wrong, when we had the SARS outbreak, um, well, at that time... Uh, China had like 4% of the global outcome. Right now, with the coronavirus coming out from China, China is, still, is, is already having 17 to 18% of the global outcome, right? That's a completely different situation. So China is on its path of becoming probably a second systemic pole, a pole that means, of course, not only economic and uh, trade power projection that means growing defense budget that means uh, you know more military capabilities uh, diplomatic leverage we've seen that already I don't give I don't need to give you the example also with a World Health Organization where we know that uh, at the beginning of uh, the coronavirus outbreak uh, part of the problem with you know controlling the narrative you know don't panic narrative was also because of China right so uh, the Chinese have already leveraged in diplomatic um, in international regional organizations they have launched their own uh, regional organizations as well so they're trying also to you know to build their own alternative set of organizations and institutions where they can actually shape relations the way how they from their perspective and then there is also of course uh, you know uh, other other layers that are uh, such as you know, culture, um, diplomacy, political affairs, um, and all the other issues. Uh, so, mm-hmm. when it comes to Russia, I think that the interesting part is uh, here is that they still very much try to use every opportunity um, to be on. So to say, to act as this global power, you know, um, <laughs> to give you an example with the nuclear, you, with the nuclear weapons, uh, for instance, uh, they tried also to negotiate with the North, you know, with the, with North Korea, so that they, you know, they also have still some um, international regimes and, um, and 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 relations. So when it comes to the nuclear non-proliferation with the United States. Uh, On the other side, they are, in my sense, uh, regional power, regional power that has no longer have any or has, sorry, any significant share in the global financial, economic, and trade uh, outcome. So that is the reality. Um, It's so to say a free rider. Um, a country that is trying now to uh, basically play its 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 cards the best way they can. They know that none of the two systemic powers, so that means neither United States nor China wants to see Russia as being part of the other bloc because that becomes problematic. And that's also the reason why we witnessed in the last uh years during the trump's you know mandate a sort of you know a sort of at least at diplomatic level you know in the in the in his language a sort of approximation with the Russian, you know, opening a door to them, even though that nothing really happened, nothing uh, serious, actually serious came out of this. And on the other side, we also witnessed this unprecedented coordination of efforts, of, uh, you know, policies in different fields between uh, China and Russia, you know, this French, unprecedented friendship within, between the, between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. And, uh, well, they are trying to, you know, to position themselves, so to say, between these two powers, but also to balance them. And also, of course, when it comes to the direct the direct geographical area where they are actually active, they're trying to build a kind of a vertical uh, axis of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, of presence, of Russian presence, of networks, starting with the Arctic, you know, in the north, then along the so-called eastern flank of, uh, you know, of uh, the European, of the European Union. These are former Soviet Uh, you know, Union members, uh, such as the Baltics, such as the Eastern European countries. Then along the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, uh, going through these uh, territories, then, uh, you know, Black Sea, like I said, the Black uh, Sea area, the Balkans, uh, Middle East now with Syria, and then the Mediterranean Sea, and now even reaching out to North Africa, where they are also having uh, their you know, presence and network. So this is actually their regional projection of power, if you like. Okay, This is actually where they really see themselves being present for the sake of their national interests, for the sake of their geoeconomic interests, if you like. This is where I see right. Russia.
0: Right, right. So what's interesting in that front is, um, from where I sit <clears throat> in Canada, where we're looking at this, we live in sort of unprecedented times, and I mean that in the following sense. So you have two people on Earth, Xi Ping and um, Narendra Modi, who are single person uh, supposedly representing one billion people. I mean, the, the scale of that asymmetry is astronomically mind-boggling because that's absurd. Then you have uh, four or five guys. You got Tim Cook, you got Jeff Bezos, you got Sundar Pichai, uh, you got Satya Nadella, who are, in, in essence, head of one trillion dollar companies. Country, companies that are not really necessarily bound um, nationally to any particular uh, region. And then you have the the, the Russians. And, and, and the reason I look at the Russians in that regard is I, I sort of see them in a way where Putin's primary objective is essentially to maintain control over power and to hand down that position of power to whoever he decides to pass it on to afterwards. Because like you said, aside from the nuclear weapons that they have, which I imagine the cost of maintaining those things – and the cost of making sure that they can still quote-unquote fire them if they have to is substantially high. It's not, it's not like, a, you know, oh, it's just sitting there, everything is good. I'm sure it costs them billions of dollars a year just to maintain it. But their economy hasn't been producing anything outside of selling natural resources. And once those natural resources have been accommodated for, because we're starting to see other countries uh, reducing their reliance. Because I remember back in um, Obama's period when they had this quote-unquote reset relations with Russia going um, the Russians were really charging the Germans a lot of money for the natural gas during the winter times to, to you know to heat the regions up. So I'm starting to see that area of it and I'm starting to say that um, Putin's angle appears, and again, this is purely conjecture and speculation on my part. nobody take this into anything other than uh, you know just a, a thought of, uh, to, to, to ruminate over, is that Russia's just basically playing their timeout so that the guy in charge can stay in charge and pass it down to whoever he sees. Because opportunities for him in this 21st century uh, are going to be opportunities based on financial capabilities and economic power, and I don't see anything coming from them that indicates that they're ready for that shift. Whereas for China's problem, <clears throat> I think they're th- th- that's one of those cases where the appearances it's kind of like that neighbor you have, and I'm reminded of you know I think it was Hemingway's quote, which is like, how do you go bankrupt slowly but then suddenly? Is that you have this this country with this uh, appearance. The outside world of projecting power and calm and stability and then something like corona shows up and all of a sudden you see that yeah that neighbor their their family looks really happy but there's actually a lot of abuse going on and in one day it could just kind of blow uh, blow out the door right so you can kind of see it sort of collapsing on it whereas the, the people think they have this false uh, assumption that because of the level of um Political vitriol that you see on Twitter with regards to the United States, that the United States is actually crumbling. Which actually it looks like it's the opposite because if they're willing to disengage with each other at that level and be that vitriolic in public, at least whatever problems are internal are going to be addressed in a much more effective manner than when you have a country where Xi Jinping is now leader for life. So <clears throat> these these particular angles, and and you also have the Chinese problem of how are you going to give a billion people. The kind of lifestyle that they all want, which is sort of more Westernized and European in nature, the amount of resources you'd have to consume, the amount of growth you'd have to be able to sustain, um, is clearly going to be beyond measure for them, and they're going to have to uh, come to terms with that really, really soon. If they were maybe 300 million big instead of a billion, then I could make the argument for them, but I don't know, I, I don't see it myself. But what do you, what's your take on it, given the fact that they have a billion people? Can they really actually ever become a quote-unquote tentpole in the opposite direction of the U.S. while maintaining social stability and harmony at home?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually a question that only time can tell whether we will witness it or not. I mean, that kind of predictions, if somebody can tell you that he or she i mean the the, cake that they can give you a prediction about it i mean they're really lying Um, (laughs) but i will try to do my best you know based on my observations you know um to 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 give you a picture the way how i see the things uh, about china let me say some words about russia because you you said something that is really important um about this uh Shift that has never happened, right? So they had like lost they they, they lost like 30 years of uh, of Opportunities to restructure the economy on the Russian side I mean and it's still basically very much the same networks Operating in the country with uh, you know what with the Russian president who is basically the balancer between these networks uh, so that they don't turn against each other and right. you know we have uh, you know, we have some state you know some really huge companies like you've pointed out natural resources is still very much you know the the case uh, for the Russian economy. Uh, There is also a growing in uh, uh, well, not not yet interdependence, but uh, you know, Russia is also now turning into a supplier for China, you know, when it comes to energy. Uh, But yes, on the other side, uh, also the interdependence between uh, European Union, uh, so basically the European Union member states and specifically you mentioned Germany and Russian know russian supplies is also growing which is ridiculous because uh, that's at least my personal opinion because instead of you know trying to diversify your energy portfolio so that you actually cut these dependencies because at some point it might turn against your interests to be so dependent on only one supplier this kind of right. interdependence uh, is uh, even growing now okay um that's uh, that's uh, that's about russia and now of course like i said with a russian president who has uh, the main function of being a balancer between all these conflictual networks within the country you know with a very different uh, background and with uh, you know very strong interests uh, uh, to control <laughs> uh, if we remove this balancer they basically will you know start they will start, you know, waging uh, wars between themselves, so to say, conflicts, you know, having conflicts. And uh, that's the reason also why he's now launched this process with, uh, you know, with a new constitution, with uh, the constitutional reform. So basically, I think that he's going to try to somehow, uh, you know, make make it possible to for him to... Somehow be uh, part of the process after you know after the end of his mandate in 2024. That's about Russia. So now mo- moving to the more you know more um, uh, questionable uh, future of uh, you know of China because there are two different there are two different layers here. On the one side. Looking because I'm someone who is always looking at the you know helicopter view of the processes and structures. There is now indeed this kind of decoupling process that has uh, you know has uh, has began with uh, you know with uh, the election of Trump. Um, it uh, is not just about trade dispute. Um, so this kind of uh, trade deal that has been negotiated, uh, the phase one trade deal is just one of the layers. We are talking about the systemic decoupling, which means that, you know, this kind of uh, introduction of China into the networks that have been launched by the United States during the Decades after the Second World War, you know, uh, specific, specifically after the 70s, when uh, China was, uh, you know, incorporated into these networks, which eventually led to this unprecedented economic power and trade power that China has become. This there is now this trend of decoupling China from these networks. OK, this is the one thing. So what I I'm observing is that there might be two scenarios on the one side of course no US president is you know eternal and we might witness another uh, election of you know of Trump but there might be also the case of you know the Democrats uh, uh, having a candidate who uh, you know beats Trump at the election campaign if we have elections because because then, of course, we have the coronavirus now, uh, and the outbreak of the corona might also lead to Trump being beaten by himself. I mean, based right. on the way how he reacts, how he reacts to uh, to the um, to the to the coronavirus. Okay, so um, if Trump would be reelected, I I would. Expect that this decoupling decoupling trend continues and I mean not only trade I mean also economic decoupling. I mean also, you know, decoupling from Institutional decoupling, you know, US on the one side is withdrawing from some international organizations where China has now quite quite great leverage on the other side um, it's about, uh, you know, um, uh, energy, like, like I've pointed out. I mean, China is, uh, in that matter, dependent on supplies from external actors. The uh, United States, on the other side, has managed a kind of a shift in the field of energy. Is now more or less reliant on supplies. That's really something that has to be pointed out. I mean, that's unprecedented as seen from the last decades. And uh, this decoupling means also that China will be probably moving towards consumption-oriented economy, Mm. right? Because so far it has been an export-oriented economy. So being a consumption-oriented economy means, of course, that China will be focusing on this uh, trend that you've pointed out with the growing Population growing. Population means also, of course, growing middle class. You know, more people, and it's not just about you know several thousands. It's about millions of people having more means, you know, to consume uh, for consumption. So actually, uh, that's probably the opportunity that China sees how to shift to make the shift, you know, in terms of economy. Um, by by you know by launching this consumption oriented economic model, and you know by reacting to the demographics uh, also to the, the, the demographics. So one of the two uh, regions in the world that will really witness uh, huge demographic growth uh well, is actually Asia you know next to Africa, so of course, on the other side, we know the problems of China when it comes to to the demographic you know uh development. I think that um well, the coronavirus isn't over yet, even though the Xi Jinping has now managed this you know the the most the most serious you know phase of of dealing with the coronavirus uh, politically. I mean, he survived politically. I don't think that he will, you know, he will politically survive the repercussions coming out from the disruption of the supply chains, of the economic trade systems that are now to happen. Right. If you've pointed it out in the right at the beginning of the conversation, so I will be looking at how Xi Jinping actually will react to this, you know, to this uh, to, to these processes and how actually he will survive this. If he survives this, right? I think that uh, next, what will come is, um, well, internally, a sort of uh, a sort of um, strengthening of, uh, you know, strengthening of uh, another centralization of political power, if you like, you know, uh, using the opportunity to get rid of some uh, opponents, political opponents you know and uh, more or less uh, becoming even more you know more focused with uh, with 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 yourself uh, internal inwards and out uh, and and outwards like i said inwards because it's all about facilitating this political power outwards it's all about how china is now going to manage its own networks with allies, partners, friendly states in Asia and beyond. And that's the reason why, actually, this kind of regional uh, projects, uh, expansionist projects, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and uh, all the other, you know, s- accompanying uh, uh, platforms, you know, banks that they have launched that are very, you know, similar to the ones that have been launched by the United States are now in place, you know, trying to get other countries into, you know, into this Chinese model of, uh, you know, of, uh, of uh, economy, economic and trade relations. So to say, to sum it up, two uncertainties. One is Xi Jinping surviving the coronavirus mm-hmm. and the disruption, and the other uncertainty is about the decoupling between United States and China.
0: Um, as the old members of the Soviet state have joined uh, Europe and their new project, um, have they really noticed any benefits of sort of aligning with the Europe that's really not necessarily integrating them as as first class citizens? Because what I have some friends who are from particular areas when they always talk to to, to me in the following sense. They say, listen, you know, um when we were part of the Soviets, we were useful quote unquote idiots for them. We knew that because, you know, it was forced satellite communism, as you stated earlier. But now that we're trying to join the Europeans, they they don't treat us as like one of the Europeans, they treat us sort of like second-class citizens. So the question I really had for you, because this is one of my friends who asked me is, are the uh, former US, uh, former satellites of uh, Soviet Union, are they enjoying their relationship with Europe now? Are they getting any benefits from it? Are they still worried about what's going on given the fact that Brexit happened and given the fact that if uh, you know Germany decides to pull out and say, listen, we're done, we can't fund this particular uh, initiative anymore. Um, what's, what's, what's the sense on the Eastern Bloc side of how all this is unfolding?
2: Okay, that's a really good question, uh, as, um, you know, I've been talking to many friends as well, and I have a family still, you know, uh, in Eastern Europe, and I've, I'm traveling, uh, you know, through all these Eastern European countries, I've, uh, I've, I'm visiting them constantly. Of course, it's, we cannot deny, there is a kind of a dividing line, between you know the core of the European Union, the Western, the old Europe, the Western Europe, you know European member states, if you like, and then the the newcomers, right, the Eastern right. European ones. Right. There is this dividing line, uh, but um, but this dividing line has also many layers. Okay, on the one side, on the one side, if you ask any of these political elites you know anybody from these political elites would you would you join um, you know another another uh, regional organization such as uh, you know such as the soviet union let ones during the you know the time <laughs> of the cold war i mean the question you know the 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 answer is always no right i mean if you if you see how um, certain ideologies such as uh, you know marxism are now uh being revived and not only at universities and you know not only by certain political leaders even here in europe i'm a, but also uh in, in, in the united states uh well eastern european countries are Done with it, you know. Of course, you will have some, some, you know, some, some people still, you know, uh, still into it, but uh, most, you know, the majority are done with it. Okay, right. that's one. For instance, one. One major, major difference, you know, Um, now with uh, the increasing influence coming from China, for instance, you know, uh, investments, uh, political links, uh, business relations, uh, loans, uh, uh, CE platforms. This is like they have, for instance, the Chinese have a special platform for the Central and the Eastern European countries that's called uh, 17, meanwhile, 17, 17 plus one, that means 17 former Soviet Union satellites and countries from the region, starting from Central and Eastern Europe, are now part of this platform uh, for relations with China, you know. Mm. Um, right. And then you have, of course, russia still very very active uh, has revived some of the old networks, very active when it comes to political links to links to some parties specifically when it comes uh, you know to more uh, more you know parties more on the extreme sides on the left or on the right so all of this is not uh, is nothing new, but uh, you know the majority of these of the population in these countries is very very much pro european even even though that they still keep, you know, being unsatisfied about this or that, there is even the joke, you know, uh, we have this joke uh, coming from Bulgaria, that Bulgaria was the last country to join the Soviet Union, Uh, and uh, finally, when they joined the Soviet Union, and the family, you know, of the satellites, uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, and... Now Bulgaria is also one of those, you know, the last countries uh, to join the European Union, and the danger is now, since Bulgaria joined the European Union, the European Union will collapse.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> that, right, that, bad timing.
2: You, you, you have all this you know, bashing on the, side, uh, you know, on the side of population, but the truth is that the Eastern European population, the majority, is very much pro-European very, very much pro-European, and they still have a lot of ben- benefits. And these people, spe- specifically, you know, uh, older generations, um, you know, they, they remember, they have the memory of how it was. Even my generation still has the memory of how it was before. And what, I mean, you have so many benefits, so many benefits. I can give you thousands of examples. What I've been through in the 90s, even, even, You know, when it came to traveling within Europe, right, Uh, how hard it was actually to travel even within Europe, even though uh, that uh, wall was already removed, the Berlin wall was removed, the Soviet Union was no longer there, and it still was very, very hard for us to travel from one country to the other. And all of this was, you know, was was gone once uh, the country, you know, uh, joined the the European Union. There are a lot of benefits. I mean, specifically the younger generations, they don't know, they have never been through it. They don't have any idea about (laughs) what it means because they freely move everywhere. And basically, that's the one thing, okay? The bashing is there, yes. But, uh, you know, uh, I cannot imagine that the majority of the population in the Eastern European parts will actually ever like to join another Soviet style union or whatsoever or uh, alliance or whatsoever. I mean, uh, no, zero, zero, zero. I can, I can assure you of that. Where the problems come are probably about lack of participation. Sometimes there is this feeling of second-class societies, you know, they are not uh, so much part of the, you know, of the institutions, of shaping the institutions. When, uh, you know, when you have, uh, for instance, uh, a reshuffle, uh, re- institutional reshuffle, like now we have a new, you know, a new commission, we have a new parliament, we have new, um, you know, uh, personalities uh, also uh, in charge of the European Union institutions, Uh, you know, there is this feeling that uh, Eastern Europeans are not, you know, Often not on the list, you know, not in the running, you know, not in the running, not uh, in, you know, in charge. But I think that also this will change. Uh, It just will take some time, but it will change as well. And then there is, of course, um, the migration crisis from, you know, 2015 that also added another dividing line. Because, you know, uh, most of the pressure was more or less taken by the Eastern European, you know, Eastern European countries and, you know, Southeastern European countries, countries in the Balkans, countries that were completely overwhelmed um, financially, economically, in terms of infrastructure, because they didn't, I mean, they were, it was not just a matter of preparation. It was just a matter of, um, of, you know, of uh, capabilities, lacking capabilities to, you know, to, to cope with such a situation, having so many people, uh, you, you know, have to facilitate ad hoc all of the necessary, you know, uh, conditions for, for them. And, uh, well, and most of the pressure was taken by these countries. That, of course, unleashed some centrifugal forces within, you know, political forces within the countries. That's correct. Some of uh, this kind of, you know, um, ad hoc forces also tried to capitalize on elections that's also correct but the last elections for instance for european parliament and most in most of these countries also show that uh, you know come to show that uh, you know there is still very much especially in the younger population there is still very much this expectation that they want a pro european pro european policies they want actually also pro european parties actually get more votes okay so there will be the trend by the way, specifically here in Central Europe, uh, you know, being led by countries such as Austria. Austria is a medium-sized country um, surrounded by Central European countries um, such as Poland, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary. Uh, These are the so-called Visegrad countries. Uh, And then, you know, building bridges to the Western Balkans and uh, to, you know, to Baltics, to Eastern Europe to kind of build uh, new new groups, new groups of, uh, you know, new alliances, if you like, so that they mm. can coordinate certain policies. Like, uh, for instance, these countries are very much pro enlargement. They want that uh, Western Balkans join the European Union because they are convinced that if Western Balkan countries join the European Union, uh, some of these conflicts... Will be settled, you know, within the within the new borders, so to say. So, uh, for instance, they are very much in favor of uh, North Macedonia or Albania getting along, you know, um, becoming the, you know, getting the opportunity also to 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 you know to start a process of enlargement. And I think this is also another dividing line because last uh, you know last statements by. Uh, Leading politicians from, you know, countries like Germany and France were very, very cautious about it. You know, they are now in a, you know, different, uh, at a different stage, so to say. They have to settle the issues after Brexit. I mean, there is going to be a kind of a competition also between France and Germany as to, which of these two countries will going to shape the processes when it comes to, you know, uh, the interests of, uh, of, of uh, continental Europeans. And there will be some, certainly some, you know, some competition also between the UK and the European Union uh, during the process of, uh, you, know, se- you know, negotiating a new deal between them. And, uh, yeah, and uh, I think that uh, in this matter, the next layer that will be decisive is, of course, the United States. United States is being perceived differently, once again, on the west side and on the east side. The eastern European countries still perceive, I mean, the governments and uh, majority of the population still perceive uh, the United States as the sole guarantor of their security, which is very interesting because they perceive the European Union as a very big economic and trade power, and it's good for them to be part of this trading and economic power. But on the other side, when it comes to their security, it's still very much about the United States first and foremost, which, of course, if we look in the capitals in uh, Western Europe, You know, European members like Germany or, you know, France or Spain, uh, there are more, you know, the discussions that are being held there is more about strategic autonomy, you know, how to get more, you know, more independent, you know, to become more independent from United States in the field of uh, defense, in the field of, you know, uh, security and so on. So different, you see how many different layers and how many different, uh, how the discussions about the same matter are being held in a different, you know, manner. Of course. Yeah.
1: Okay, so how, uh, how do China and Russia see the American alliance with India getting stronger? Um, well, that's one of the
2: things that I'm really, really very excited about, this upcoming, uh, this upcoming U.S.-India relationship. Uh, On the one side, I saw it as an inevitable development due to this approximation between China and Russia, but specifically due to the rapprochement between China and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So uh, there will be, in my sense, uh, you know, an effort on the side of the U.S. government, no matter who the next president will be to approach India uh, well to uh, try to deepen relations not only in the field of trade, economic ties, uh, cultural ties, but also to try to build uh, to build up a, you know, a relation when it comes to defense cooperation. This is going to be hard because Russia for instance has been a traditionally good you know, a strategic partner, actually, strategic partner to India uh, already from the time during the Cold War and afterwards as well. So Russia has been also trying to meet, you know, to, to, to mediate between uh, China and India. China-India relationship is a very, very difficult one. Uh, these are two natural rivals. Uh, these are two countries that are not just the neighbors, you know, just, Neighbors uh, being natural arri- arrivals. I mean on the other side, China and Russia are also neighbors direct neighbors and natural rivals. However, the difference here is that China has been trying to engage all direct India's neighbors into a kind of a strategy um, you know, of, of deepening relations, uh, offering loans, Um, Deepening relations in many, many areas, you know, offering loans, um, trying to, you know, to increase a presence, direct presence on the ground. Uh, And India perceives this. strategy as a kind of encirclement okay this is actually the way how the you know the indian the indian um, you know political elite sees it uh, there is going to be also the issue you know of, over uh, you know food water there's going there are many conflictual areas there on the other side like i said pakistan the you know the direct rival uh, in this uh, you know in the south uh, uh, asian region where the two countries have uh, waged wars against each other Um, they had many many military conflicts and they have also nuclear weapons is now uh, basically in the orbit of chinese influence you know china is building a, a comprehensive economic corridor is trying you know to um, well influence uh, politics is uh, having military presence if you like i mean that's uh, you know under the it's actually uh, laid out as uh, you know securing chinese investments on the ground But there there is an increasing, you know, increasing engagement on the side of Beijing in Pakistan. So, uh, as you can see, you know, Russia on the one side has been trying to uh, mediate between China and India. Um, There are many different platforms for that matter. Uh, You know, take the so-called BRICS. Platform. These are the countries Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Okay. Then they have also launched some, uh, you know, uh, actually two banks on the side of China with participation of these countries in order to facilitate uh, investments in the region. Uh, Then, of course, there have been uh, different regional forums where also Russia has been trying to somehow, you know, Uh, well, bring these two countries together, at least in the field of, uh, you know, political links. There is, for instance, a trilateral um, format between the foreign ministers of China, Russia and India. Okay, so there are some platforms where these three can meet and can discuss, you know, hot topics. On the other side, like I said, for India, in the long term, it's going to be important to have a stable, you know, reliable partner that can also provide for, you know, the geopolitical interests of India. And right now, uh, it's uh, really interesting <laughs> to see how uh, the previous Ali of Pakistan, United States, has now is now on its way to become, you know, India's friend due to this uh, changing uh, constellations. So I'm expecting uh, a kind of, uh, you know, this, this visit by Trump in India was just part, uh, you know, of a series of new measures and meetings and engagements between these countries due to the uh, constellations that I um, have, uh, you know, outlined for you.
1: Okay, perfect. So how much coordination and cooperation be- uh, does China and Russia engage in? And how do they deal with Pakistan as their ally, given their Muslim extremist problem in both countries?
2: Yes, 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 yes. So the thing about the, this, uh, I called it I called it the dragon bearer, this kind of coordination. I called it, uh, back in 2015, I called it uh, the dragon bearer in order to, you know, to point to a new mode of uh, systemic coordination and to find out whether there is really something new to this uh, was it an ad hoc or was it just you know uh, an ad hoc event or development due to new realities in the global affair or affairs or was it really something more systemic something more long term so uh, first and foremost it's important to understand that it's not uh, an alliance in the sense how we understand alliances, you know, based on shared values or, you know, uh, overlapping uh, comprehensive uh, interests. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first thing. So it's uh, actually uh, a mode of systemic, this is at least how I call it, a mode of systemic coordination uh, between these two countries in various fields. And in several geographic areas, while they are still natural rivals, and they are still, you know, having also country, you know, conflictual interests in other areas and in other, you know, fields of policy. So that's the other thing. So it's a kind of, if you like, interim, you know, interim mode of coordination um, between these two as a matter of convenience uh which of course is uh well on the one side uh due to this global system transformation uh on the other side due to the need uh you know to uh you know to be uh, sort of so, so to say to build a, a, an alternative an alternative model to the us led one so of course the most strategic goal of any of this coordination is how to react to U.S.-led policies or to U.S.-led, you know, organizations, institutions in any of the fields. That's, that has to be comprehended, that it's, of course, about, you know, uh, about uh, also an asymmetric, uh, you know, cooperation, if you like, because right now the country that has the leverage is China, the country that has the liquidity, if you like, you know, the country that can provide for liquidity for projects or whatsoever uh, is, is, is China. But what Russia can offer, of course, is, uh, you know, in certain areas, uh, not only the experience from the Cold War, it's not only about, you know, the nuclear weapons that, it still has and developing new defense technologies that might be, you know, useful and interesting for, you know, for China. But also about, uh, you know, specifically about um, um, about certain technologies and certain areas where there can be certain there can be certain, um, you, you know, interdependence. One area I already mentioned is the energy sector because china as a you know as a growing economic power is hunger hungry for is hungry for you know for natural resources and Russia can provide these resources of course Russia is not the only supplier uh, China has a very diversified portfolio, but the share of Russian supply is you know has the tendency of growing so energy of course is one of these uh, uh, certainly one of these key areas. Um, you mentioned also, you know, defense, uh, um, the defense sector, you know, military cooperation is certainly on the trend of rising. I mean, uh, there is uh, indeed already several developments that point to this tendency. Uh, there are trials, you know, exercises being organized by these two countries. Okay. Uh, there is also... A regional cooperation uh, called, uh, you know, under the um, under the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where they also discuss uh, not only defense cooperation and military cooperation, but they also discuss anti-terror uh, operations. Uh, they have uh, the two countries have also other partners such as the Central. Asian countries, and they have some, you know, they have invited some uh, uh, countries as observer, you know, with an observer uh, observer um, mode. Um, so um, uh, this Shanghai cooperation organizations, for instance, is one platform, regional platform, where none of the you know, so-called West is, uh, you know, is uh, nobody from the, so the so-called West is being part of. And they are discussing issues, you know, of uh, uh, anti-defense matters. Um, then there is, of course, the issue of trade and economy, which is also... A, uh, having the ten- tendency of, uh, you know, of, uh, of rising. So that, means, that means also they are deepening the relations in the field of trade, in the field of economic ties, in the field of, uh, you know, financial, financial matters. They are trying, you know, to, um, for instance, China has provided uh, for, you know, for, or well, basically we can say it, that it actually saved the Russian currency. Uh, the last time when it uh, has been facing a really, really tough time, um, that was uh, uh, to, in 2015, uh, was basically, um, you know, saved by the Chinese. And uh, yes, and uh, mm-hmm. then there is the field of agriculture, because, China, you know, China, as we know, um Needs a lot of uh, uh, imports, uh, food imports. Uh, so Russia is also one of the sources for them to, you know, to provide for, uh, you know, for, for uh, different um, agricultural pro- products. Uh, and uh, and technological scientific cooperation is of course also to be mentioned. Um, new technologies now is a discussion about, uh, for instance, 5G. Huawei and the Russian government has no problem with, you know, introducing Huawei 5G uh, network, uh, you know, to Russia. There are of course uh, new technologies such as uh, artificial intelligence, you know, uh, capabilities or uh,
0: you wait, know, the wait, new
2: wait. internet. Yes?
0: Wait, wait yeah, well, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. That that how does Russia not mind the Chinese providing them Huawei into their infrastructure? Isn't that just like a complete and utter uh, subjugation of their uh, potential capabilities for intelligence by letting the Chinese have a backdoor?
2: Well, they have, in fact, they have a, a sort of kind of a cooperation in the cyber, you know, cyber field. And uh, they are even, uh, well, the Russians uh, want to introduce even their own Internet uh, at least that's the plan. I mean, uh, between, you know, plan and reality, you know, you can never know exactly where where they are in the process. Right. Um, mm. Yes. But uh, at least on the political level, it's very important to understand that this kind of, uh, you know, dragon bear coordination is very much being shaped by the highest ranking uh, you know, level of political mm. elite so it's a very personal relationship between uh, you know the russian president vladimir putin and xi jinping you know that's the the first layer it's very right. highly coordinated it has to be understood that it's really very high high highly coordinated that means that probably a very close circle a very very close circle on both sides is, 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 you know, is being part of this process of coordination when it comes to the, you know, poli- political, when it comes to political decisions, what to do. Uh, so, I probably, I I mean, I would, I would not take, uh, you know, a decision such as the one to introduce the 5G, the Huawei 5G to Russia as, you know, uh, I would take it as a preliminary, you know, political statement. I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't expect that it, it's going to happen tomorrow or you know next year, but it right. is a strong signal, right? It, that that that's uh, actually my point.
0: Right. Like we we right, should right.
2: not take it for granted. We should not actually take it as something that is reality until it happens. However, what is right. really interesting is uh, this kind of readiness, you know, to open new you know chapters and to explore. And that is actually something that's, I mean, on my side, uh, worrisome because we don't really know exactly what is going on behind the curtains. We don't have so much information about it. There is no, so, you know, there is no really kind of transparent process about what is really going on, what is really coordinated, how much, what is the scale. So mm. I'm outlining, I'm just outlining for you some. Some of these layers, some of these, you know, some of these processes, uh, some of these structures, if you like, but it it doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's the point. Uh, You know, we should we should should look at it. We should consider it. uh, But it says nothing about, uh, you know, the, 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 the final outcome. And, uh, yeah, and that's why I think that specifically this kind of, um, you know, scientific coordination and cooperation in this, uh, you know, when it comes to these new technologies is quite, you know, quite a new terrain, you know, Terra Nova, if you like. Right. (laughs) Because uh, there are so many options there to be explored. And um, we know on the Chinese side, that they are quite advanced already in uh, some of these technologies. They have been testing them on their own population, right? So, um, and they have been already, you know, testing them also on third countries, you know, for, for example, in Africa. So I don't know whether there is uh, this interest on the side of the Russian government to introduce something, you know, when it comes to the own population. We know that uh, we talked about it previously. There is no, you know, no serious uh, economic shift, ha- shift has been actually achieved in the last 30 years. The demographic, uh, uh, you know, development in Russia isn't, uh, you know, isn't really positive one. Mm-hmm. To put it mildly, and uh, you know, um, there is uh, always this case of uh, you know how to react to kind of uh, uh, you know protests coming from the you know the population and whatsoever. So we don't know exactly what they are they have in mind, you know, and the proposal of having on internet, you know, to the to the couple to the couple from uh, from from. From the internet network, if you like, you know, to have your own internet, I mean, points to something like let's have a, uh, an own internet, let's have an own, you know, technology about everything. <laughs> right. Let's 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 isolate ourselves from, uh, you know, from the basically from U.S.-led uh, technologies. This is how right. I see it.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, we appreciate uh, your your uh, vast and deep uh, sources of knowledge and experience within this area. We appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Is there anything uh, left that you want to go over?
1: Well,
2: I think that we've touched upon many, many issues. Uh,
0: <laughs> yes, thank you for that.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I actually have to thank you for the patience with me because um I'm uh, you know I love talking so
0: <laughs> No we loved it we loved it there was so much good stuff to to digest
2: Yeah 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 it's uh, certainly we just scratched on the surface uh, regarding all these issues um and uh, for those who would be interested in learning more um, about all of these uh, topics, uh, you can, they can always visit our, you know, our Twitter accounts and can engage there. Um, and I really, really thank you for having me this evening and uh, for all your comments, also and really great insights that you provided
0: no, during the you conversation. Much. Thank you. You're welcome anytime you want to come back and share Mm -hmm. your insights into the evolving situation of what's happening in Europe and Russia and China. So please feel free uh, whenever you want to come back and discuss other topics. Just let us know. We'll make the accommodations. And in the meantime, we will link to your Twitter account and to to your institute and all uh, the good stuff that people can find there. Did you have any books that you want to recommend for our listeners?
2: Well, I have, uh, yeah, I have a book list. I'd love to provide, uh, you know, those who are interested with it. Uh, There is not a single book about, you know, about these issues. You basically have to cover many, many, many different uh, areas. So uh, those who want to, to, uh, you know, to get uh, more information, they can write me. I have my direct messages open to everyone, and I'm trying to respond to everyone, actually. Okay,
1: perfect.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> thank you so much for joining us have a my wonderful own evening.
2: my only recommendation book recommendation is of course to read the insert by Nasim Taleb that's the only recommendation I will make <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you very much have a wonderful evening we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have the truth is any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one
1: Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.